Welcome to the Doctors of Running Virtual Roundtable, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and the science to the stuff that we're putting on our feet. We have, a, again, I said this last week, but we have a little bit of a skeleton crew again today. It's just Matt and I. David actually, unfortunately, came down with COVID yesterday, and so he is lying down and watching football tonight. Um, so we are wishing him a speedy recovery. Um, he's doing well. He He's doing okay, but um, he'll be out for a little bit and out of running for a little bit. So we hope he recovers really well and doesn't have any lingering issues, but it's just Matt and I today. I've got a lot to kind of start us off with, so bear with me a little bit. This is episode number 73 of the podcast, and today we're going to be covering a lot of different topics. Uh, We're pulling a little audible since DJ's gone. We want him around for a conversation we were going to have, but today we're going to revisit a topic on how long running shoes last that we kind of talked about in an episode a few weeks ago. We want to bring some extra depth to that conversation, at least some nuance, kind of describing what we don't know about shoes and... um, what we do know about them. So we're going to revisit that conversation. We're also going to start talking about what are the best kind of shoes for new runners or how do you go about selecting your first pair of shoes? Or if you're a newer runner and you're looking to get your first pair of maybe a little bit higher quality, more expensive, and you don't want to just waste the money, what are some things to consider? So that's going to be the outline of the episode. But before we do that, we have a lot of new listeners and a lot of new followers. So I did want to give a little bit of an intro to kind of who we are. Um, we are all docs physical therapy. We have our degrees in physical therapy as well as some, some other advanced degrees and trainings in biomechanics and anatomy. And we all practice physical therapy on a daily basis. So I got my degree from the University of Delaware. Uh, I have a master's in science and clinical, um, in anatomy and clinical health sciences, as well as a doctorate in physical therapy from the University of Delaware. And then I got uh, extra training at uh, USC in the Movement Performance Institute. That's where I met Matt. Um, and so we kind of combine all of that knowledge with our passion for running and what we do on a day-to-day basis. I practice at an outpatient orthopedic setting uh, in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. We're a small private practice. We do serve a lot of runners um, and do detailed video analysis, EMG assessment, stuff like that, just to help runners stay healthy or get healthy. Um, and so that's kind of my day-to-day. And Matt, why don't you just a really brief intro for people who might not know you just tell us kind of your educational background. Right. So like Nathan, I'm also a doctor of physical therapy. So I did my training, my doctorate degree at uh, Western University of Health Sciences in Pomona. Uh, I continued on for advanced training doing re- uh, an orthopedic residency. So I'm an, uh, now an orthopedic clinical specialist. Nathan is as well. Oh, yeah. And I did Forgot a fellowship <laughs> program at Kaiser Permanente doing D- Kaiser Permanente the, as in, um, in manual therapy and sport rehabilitation, which was great. Um, I practiced all over currently. I just finished up practicing at Kaiser Panorama City and will be transferring to Kaiser Baldwin Park for a cool new project. But on top of that, I am a PhD student at Azusa Pacific University. Um, hopefully, we'll be a candidate here in the next couple of weeks as I've got the last part of my comprehensive exams going on. Um, and then I'm also an adjunct faculty at Azusa Pacific as well. So, all, like both of us, always learning. A lot of training. I met Nathan again through uh, Chris Powers Movement Performance Institute. And so lots of extra biomechanic stuff. It's just a continual journey of learning and uh, improving. It's really fun. I feel like as I've gotten further in my education, I've just continued to learn how much I don't know, which I think is the kind of the fun part of the profession and just the complexity of our bodies. Always stuff to learn. Yeah, that's what we try to bring here. The, again, not to interrupt you, the goal of this is we have gotten to this point where we start realizing how complicated this is. We're going to do our best to try to simplify it down as much as possible for the consumer to be able to kind of understand what works best for them. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the more education that we can bring to, to the people who are listening, I think we found that we have three main audiences and we try to serve all of them. Um, one of them is fellow physical therapists who are trying to hone their practice and people who work with runners. One of them is running shoe store workers or owners who are trying to help the customers that they have coming through the doors. And then the third and probably the largest are runners themselves and people who are either interested in footwear or just running in general. And so we're trying to serve all of those, uh, those audiences. And hopefully this podcast is a place for conversation. And that's the, the avenue that we try to do it is through conversation between us, because there's usually not one right answer on most of this stuff. And we like to bring that diversity of thought and nuance to it. So we're, in that vein, we are looking for a way to engage you all more in these conversations. And so I have a, a couple questions for you. We're going to start a new segment on the podcast called something. So you guys can help us name this like, I don't know, conversation kindling or something. I don't know. But here's the kindling for today. Um, we want to know what is your most recent running related injury that you've had. Um, and so running related injury is usually something that takes you out for at least three sessions or a full week uh, due to that pain or whatever's going on. So kind of use that as your as your litmus test for it. Or if you have a chronic thing that's been been dealing with, we want to hear what it is. So if you're on YouTube and you're watching this, you can just comment below uh, kind of what that most common injury is. If you are on podcast platform, you can reach out to us at doctorsofrunning at gmail.com and let us know what the most common injury, or you could hop onto Instagram or something and just instant or instant message. Oof, what am I back in middle school or something? You can private message or without direct message us on Instagram and we'll add that to the pool. Our hope is to use these answers for platforms for future conversations. Um, we've done other ones on other injuries like the Achilles, and we did a plantar fascia one a while ago that we'll probably redo at some point again. But there's your run or conversation kindling. I don't know if I like that. Give us another name. Uh, my, it's okay. My other question for, for everybody is I've been drinking a lot of um, ginger ale lately. And I'm starting to realize that there's different things. There's like ginger ale, like Canada Dry. I'm learning that there's ginger soda. I don't know. Verner's is a ginger yeah. soda. Yeah. What's those the difference between those two? That's what I want to know. So if somebody knows, let me know. Matt, do you know? I think it depends on the con- – uh, correct me if I'm wrong, someone. The concentration of what – if there's actual like high levels of ginger in there. Because I know – I have no idea what I'm talking about. Ginger soda tastes way sweeter, whereas the ginger ale, ginger, ginger beer ale, is really biting. Yeah, that's my favorite ginger beer, non-alcoholic ginger beer, where it's like you just get so much intense ginger flavor. That's what I like. Yes. So maybe it's a spectrum, right? Where yes. it's like ginger soda is light, lightest, ginger ale is the middle, and then ginger beer is like blow right. your socks off ginger. Right. We'll find out. Unless you're like me and you just eat to eat straight crystallized sugar ginger, which I also Ew. do. So, Weird. yeah, Regi- cool. Regina says the same thing. She's like, how do you do that? <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, so those are my two questions for you guys. Uh, and, and if you could help us out with, you know, naming the segment, but definitely let us know what the most recent injury you've had is. And then if you know the difference between ginger beer, ginger soda and ginger ale, that would be great. We should probably move on, but I do need to give one more shout out to Rafael Nadal. I don't know if you watched this today at all, Matt. Do you, oh, do you know who Rafael Nadal it. is? Okay, yes, so, I do. Tennis. tennis, tennis player. He won his twenty first Grand Slam, which before today 
Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, and Roger Federer all had won 20 Grand Slams. And so he took the leap one step above all of those other guys at the Australian Open, which has kind of been his Achilles heel of all of the Grand Slams, where he's just had a lot of heartbreak there, or he's been injured, lots of this stuff. And he was down 0-2 in the sets, and he came back and he ended up winning in five sets, 7-5. It was crazy. It was such a good match. And I just thought it was awesome. And he should, he should, he deserves a big shout out. And I hope he has a fun time celebrating. I don't know. Maybe also let us know if you think he's the, the, the goat of those three. Cause it's, it's crazy in the last 20 years, 19 years, there's been about 75 grand slam championship opportunities between those three guys. They've won 61 of them. Think of how crazy that is over the last That's 19 impressive. years. Because I think Rafael Nadal won his first one in tw- 2003. So then since 2003 to now, they've won 61 of the 75-ish wow. available. Poor every other professional tennis player. Seriously. That's not why we're here, though, even though we always tend to talk about sports in some way. We're going to go into our first segment, and we're going to revisit, again, a conversation we had with Stuart Jenkins uh, a few weeks ago. He's the founder of Blue Maca. He had mentioned some stuff about uh, how he loved the Hoka Cushing paradigm, that it decreases shock absorption on the body, and that it, it cushions the feet and um, decreases impact. Then we also talked about how long do running shoes last. Matt kind of mentioned something about 80 to 100 miles, and then the foam's gone. So we wanted to revisit those two conversations Um in the future, pretty soon, we're going to also talk about how cushioning relates to injury rates and preventing injury, but we're going to save that because there's been a decent number of articles put out in the last year and year and a half uh, on that topic. So that's going to be another conversation. So we're not going to talk about injury rates, but we do want to just talk about loading and how long foam lasts. So Matt, why don't you just kick us off in talking about what do we know about different levels of foam and impact forces and what is impact force and what, what changes with different types of foams. Got it. So most of what we know thus far is that in the the conventional thinking was that more stack height meant more protection, right? Which you would think would make sense, right? That you have more foam underneath your foot. Logically you would land. Therefore the foam should take more of that force. Unfortunately, that doesn't actually account for all the other impact and stability requirements up higher in the chain, right? You can't get rid of energy, right? It just gets redirected into a different spot. So more cushioning, as we've learned from some of the research recently, doesn't actually mean less impact force. And we're talking about impact force that's usually we're, especially from our profession, we're talking about joint level or tissue level impact forces. So there's going to be a certain... Like when you land, there's a certain total amount of force that goes through the entire body, right? Or that when you hit the ground, that's how we measure it. But there's also internal forces that happen from individual joint compression and tissue compression. And what we've discovered is that more cushioning actually doesn't mean more protection. In fact, some a lot of people actually, when they have more cushioning, they'll land harder. So you're going to land with more impact force. And what the theory is, is that it's increased, increased impact Mm -hmm. force. The theory is specifically increased joint loading. The theory is that because proprioceptively or body awareness wise, more cushioning impairs your ability to sense when you're hitting the ground. Some of your muscles delay a little bit in their activation. And so you actually end up hitting the ground harder, right? Because you don't know, you don't realize, hey, I've got a hard surface below me. I just think there's mm-hmm. a softer cushioning. And so what we realized is that 
different density soles was actually cause people to land with different levels of impact. So more cushioning actually in certain, a lot of people can mean more impact because you hit the ground harder. So we don't want, you know, and there is some emerging evidence as people try to figure out, well, does more cushioning mean more like decreased injuries? And we'll talk about that on a different podcast, but, or a, a different episode, but it more cushioning doesn't mean more impact because there's a lot of variability, right? We know that on instability, right? So softer midsoles, people may change how they land, but there's going to be less stability. So you have to kind of compensate to find that, but it's not across the board, right? So we cannot say that more cushioning co- decreases impact forces. And in, I think the the logic behind it makes sense in in a couple ways. One is the impact in itself. When you look at like the mathematical formula, is a time dependent um, time dependent factor. And so right. when you take a soft foam, the idea would be it it compresses slowly over time as you land, which would in theory, increase the amount of time that your body is absorbing shock. So you, you right. land, the foam is compressing, your body's compressing, there's a longer period of time that the, that force is being spread through the loading of your body. But why that doesn't end up kind of coming in, coming in to be the case is what Matt was talking about, was instead of just your body moving the same and the foam also compressing on top of it, your body lands more in a stiff manner, which means that the total amount of time that you're in that shock absorbing portion of uh, the gait cycle ends up being the same or shorter. So then you have actually higher impact forces through your joints. Um, So I I just think it's, I think it's a fascinating paradox where you, what we think would be true isn't necessarily true, but that doesn't necessarily, I think the other really important thing when we talk about forces in general, um, and even like you think about ACL injuries and moving into knee valgus and all of this kind of stuff, force in and of itself or impact levels or there's the impact peak. I mean, this has been talked about with heel striking all the time. Oh, heel striking is a high impact peak. So it's, you know, you can't heel strike because it's going to cause injury force in and of itself does not mean injury impact in and of itself does not mean injury we're, we're just looking at biomechanical factors first and then individual factors come into play later and um we're really fingers crossed we're really hoping that we can bring on a researcher who's been doing a lot of the research in cushioning to come on the podcast to talk about this stuff and how we should actually think about it because the findings of the research are kind of like they seem kind of sexy a little bit um but if you read this study and then you read this study, you're going to find that they say different things. And so how do you deal with, you know, conflicting evidence? And so we'll, we'll dive into that, but long story short, well, yeah, Matt, you want to go Real, really quickly for those that don't know what the impact peak is. So when you graph, when somebody has an initial contact or their landing phase, so there's a graph here, right? And so you'll see the force that comes in. It'll, it kind of looks like this curve like that. So heel strikers generally have this initial peak like that, and then it curves. And so people really focused on that initial impact peak, but we discovered that that's just something unique to that. And so it actually wasn't really associated with injury risk. And I think what's important here is that we, we people try to simplify this stuff down, but it's always there's these are multifactorial things, right? I say this is somebody whose PhD is in biomechanical stuff, and it's nice to focus on the physics, but you can't ignore the other factors like the sensory system. How does your body respond to what's under the foot? How what is your body? How does your body react to it? Right. So there's other factors that you have to think about. It's not just you know purely one thing that's that will influence this, and that it's so complicated. That's where 
the research needs to go probably with going what different factors, what combination might do that. But we aren't mm-hmm. there yet. Right. There's so much to do. Yeah. So much to learn, which is awesome. The other part of this conversation that we wanted to come back to was kind of talking about the length and the lifespan of foam. And so, Matt, you'd kind of you'd mentioned that there was a study you were part right. of in undergrad that right. um, talked about 80 to 100 miles and then something changed. So yep. let's just talk a little bit more about what that study was finding and how much yep. we can draw from it and how much we can't. Because what we don't want to have people here is, oh, every time you get to 80 miles, chuck your shoes out the door and pick up a new pair. That That wasn't the point. So, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit? I just told you an average. So let me explain this a little bit more. I was lucky enough at University of Puget Sound to be able to work with a really amazing biomechanist. And the study that I was helping with, and I wasn't primary and I was actually a participant as well, in addition to helping out, was for Reebok looking at sole durability and how long things lasted. So we tested all these different shoes. It was one of the original Reebok like ZigTech shoes, I think. A uh, long, long ago. Now, this study I don't think was ever published because I was looking for it the other day, and I need to go reach out to Dr. Heidi Orloff, who, shout out, if she somehow listens to this, I'll be amazed, but she was a major inspiration for me when I was in PT school from biomechanics, or in, uh, in undergrad when I was doing uh, in biomechanics classes. But I don't think it ever got published, so this is technically gray literature, meaning it's not been published, It's in some of the data's out there. I haven't been able to get my hands on it. I've reached out to a couple people, but haven't gotten anything. So the, the sum, you got to realize the results that I'm telling you got to take with a grain of salt because they were, they were not published. So there's a large, large bit of unknown, but what we're seeing is a lot of the running shoes and this is before Piba foams. So I can't comment on some of the newer foams, but a lot of the EVA based foams were breaking down by about a hundred miles, meaning that the resiliency and the, of the foam was starting to get lost when you got to about 100 miles. And that didn't mean the shoe was done. Do you remember how you were measuring that? So we looked at um, watching biomechanics and, and watching the vertical oscillation, I believe, and seeing how much how much compression there was. That's a good question. I don't remember exactly, but that's what I do remember. That's why, yeah. I, hey, those people that I sent emails out, please respond if you listen, because I <laughs> would like to know more. It's been a, it's been a minute. It's been like yeah. 10, 12 years. Right. So I think it was the vertical oscillation. And then when it, the, the vertical oscillation s- started slowing down, like there was less of it, maybe the foam is probably compressing yeah. less. And so that happened almost consistently, regardless of the price of the shoe, which was very interesting. Like some of the more expensive ones and the cheap ones, they all did this at the same rate. And so when you got to about a hundred miles, that was the average after that, the shoe lasted as long as your body could handle it. So a lot of those major cushioning properties were there. And then after that, it's how long can your body compensate? And then compensates, maybe not the right word. Right. Yeah, because the foam, just because the foam might not have that resiliency doesn't mean right. that it's not, because foam does something. People who run in mil- yeah. minimalist shoes versus people who run in maximalist shoes um, yeah. have a different running experience. It feels different underfoot. And your body yep. does change the way it runs. And so, you know, the biomechanical factors, even after some resiliency loss, doesn't mean you're going from running in a cushioned shoe to a minimalist shoe. Yeah. It's not like that. It's just this slow nope. grade towards it. It just starts to change its properties where it's not the same on day one that it was on mile 100 or mile zero to mile 100. Um, right. And then it's kind of more static from there, it sounds like. 
Yeah, and these are shoes. But these were shoes, by the way. This was controlled, so we had people just running in one pair of shoes. So there's some additional evidence that having multiple pairs of shoes decreases injury risk and help and may help the foam rebound. So who knows if you're rotating shoes? So yeah. So please Mm -hmm. know that what I just said isn't set in stone. It was done many years ago, and it was we need more information on this. But that was kind of some of the initial stuff that was saying that this basically the foams may not retain their maximum cushioning properties as long as we thought and there's also the responsibility of the runner to go hey you got to make sure your body is also absorbing impact too so it's not just the shoe i think the other interesting part i mean you said this was just done with eva foams um we're fans of eva we're not like anti-eva people uh Mm -hmm. but at the same time uh i think something interesting uh that was done it was a case study for one person, you know, lab rat run down Dustin yeah. or whatever. He was on he yeah, was yeah. on the podcast yeah. before. He did a um, 450 kilometer um, uh, running economy test versus a brand new pair of Alpha Flies. So 450 kilometer in Alpha Fly in the Alpha Flies, and then also um, a brand new pair. And right. he th- they both still gave economical benefit to running after that amount of time. And so, you know, there's something to be said there, too, where it's just like, yes, there's biomechanical measures of foam. But what does like, you know, rocker geometry and all these different components of a shoe mean for the resiliency of that shoe to do its quote unquote job for you as a runner? So it's not as easy as just like, when does the foam go? Because the foam we don't know might not be gone. Plus, that's a PBAX foam. So that's a different story, too. But like the foam might not be totally gone. We don't know for sure. And there's more than just foam in a shoe. There's rigidity. There's right. uh, how firm and how soft. There's the rocker different in the front and the back. All those different things. So I think my point in wanting to bring this back up was let's like pump the brakes on saying throw out your shoes at 80 to 100 miles. That's not what we're saying. We, As Stuart pointed out, we don't have like a solid way for every individual to know when they should get a new pair of shoes. And that's I think that's still a reality. I, I will say, though, the one thing. So, again, Nathan, I'm really happy you brought this up because I didn't realize me making that comment. People were like, oh, that 100, shoes, 100 miles done. And I'm like, <laughs> oops, that was not the point. Just um, an excuse each, to buy a new pair. Exactly. Right. So um, I think what's really important to keep in mind is just like a lot of things that we talk about here. This is going to be very individual. So how hard you hit the ground, right? Your individual mechanics, your daily mileage, all these factors are probably going to influence how long running shoes last for you, right? And that's going to be different for you versus your running buddy versus the guy on the other side of the country or the girl in another like state. So you ha- you'll we encourage having yourself be your own study going and paying attention when the shoe start, starts to feel not good. That might be a sign things are breaking down. If you start noticing, if you keep track of your miles on your shoe, that you kind of start hitting that endpoint at a certain mileage, that might be a good standard for you to know, all right, when I get to around this point, this is where I might need to start switching my shoes out. But it's not going to be something that's very comparable to other people just because we are so unique. I don't know if we've mentioned this before, but people's gait patterns are as unique as their fingerprints. Hmm. I think one of the things that you pick up as a many PT students start when they're watching biomechanics and watching doing gait analysis. One of the things that students start noticing is that they can tell their classmates by their gait pattern. And so that's how individual it is. So that also means that how you wear shoes, how you break stuff down is going to be totally individual. So please use yourself and learn and test things out and don't assume that you're going to have the same experience as somebody else. Totally. 
We're all different. Yes. I mean, have you? Has anybody seen what I do to the posterior lateral side of my left shoe compared to all the everybody else on here? It's just a, it's just tragic. I don't really understand. It's pretty how bad. I, I don't really know how that happens, but it does. Like these these poor things have like ten miles on them. <laughs> Which shoe is that? That, oh, is that on the... on cloud? Yeah, the cloud boom echo. Oh yeah, you just you just got that one this week. I literally just got that. Yeah, and already wearing yeah. through the heel. What was the what's first initial impressions for it? You know, I w- it's it's a sexy looking shoe. Um, I do like it. I don't think the biggest question I've had is how does it compare to other racing flats? I don't think it does. I think it it's not a it doesn't have a Piba or Pbax foam. It's a firmer ride. If if you run it on, it's the softest on shoe I've ever run in. But also, please know that means it's still firm. It is snappy, but it doesn't have a lot of bounce. It's more of a rolling kind of ride. I think somebody asked, like, it's almost the closest I could say is maybe the Rocket X, except faster. Like, it, I feel like I could still hit faster miles in this. Okay. But a bouncy ride it does not have. And, yeah, I just don't. I'm, I managed to find these on eBay for not their full price, and I would not pay 270 But they are a sexy shoe. And I got to give on really credit nice. for for how they how they look i had multiple compliments when i was breaking them in the first day so yeah that's cool i on i think you're doing it you're on the right track let me put it that way we'll have a full on review the right track. soon yep bad pun i also on if you're if you're listening to this i would love we would love to test out some of those new track spikes that were just seen at the milrose games you know if you just need <laughs> any more wear testers which probably means they're going to send them to nathan because you guys are size nine and i am like the awkward like size 10 that no one tests yeah it's too bad Sorry, Matt. For those Your life is hard. For the, if if only you could get free shoes really somehow. If only you got know, free shoes, life man. Life sucks. <laughs> I would have to start some website and have it go on for years and bring on some awesome people to help me organize it, and then oh, they, people might send us shoes. Oh man, yeah, we live a tough life. But, yeah, we're really. Struggling. For those who don't know, by the way, that reference uh, for prototype stuff, we're testing sample size for men is size nine. So Nathan is size nine, David and Bach are size nine and a half, so they can usually wiggle their way into most things. And I'm sitting here by myself going, no one loves me. Yep, that's exactly and the reason. That's, size, I love how he that's, internalizes that's just this. Yes, exactly. Like an identity problem, I, like my foot size is. creates an identity yeah. issue. And then, yep, my feet oh. are too big. I have to tell everybody too. I'm, 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 throwing, I'm throwing this out there, Matt. With supply chain, you know, stuff that's been going on, like new shoes are not coming out or have not been. They're slowly starting to leak back out. Matt has literally been going through like shoe withdrawal, like new shoe withdrawal. Yeah. Like granted, he runs like, you know, <laughs> 70 to 100 so miles spoiled. a week. But he's just like, Do, can I buy, should I buy this one? Should I buy this one? You know, like always asking us. And we're like, dude, just. Just like no, like just wait. We, I always I'm freaking out because I'm like, do we are we gonna have enough content? And box like, dude, chill out. We have plenty of content. Like yes. just slow down. I'm like, so yeah, multiple panic. That's oh, I need to like I should just go buy this one because we need we didn't review that. And they're like, no, just chill. Like I would get made fun of if people knew to what lengths I went through to try to find this oh shoe at least just to not buy it on full price though. That was the extra like. Where can I find this with a discount or something? Because I don't want to pay two seventy. Yeah, there's a whole story behind that. Oh, it's so funny. Shoe withdrawal is real for for Matt. Yeah, and even David yeah. started to feel it a little bit. Yeah, anyway, he did. And then, it's a bad addiction. Then we started getting. And, yep, and then they start flowing in. We're like, oh gosh, we're overwhelmed already. <laughs> All right, we're going to transition to our final segment of the night, which is we're we're really excited about this one on our website. 
doctorsofrunning.com, we just released uh, the beginner's guide to running shoes. And our goal here was to provide a written resource for people who maybe are looking for their first pair of shoes ever or uh, have been running a little bit but want to know, how do I actually go get my first like quality pair of running shoes? And so we wanted to put that uh, out to the public. So that's on our website. You can find it there. It's one of the posts. You'll have to scroll down and find it um, in the posts. But we really hope that it's helpful. The way that we approached it on there is very much from a biomechanical standpoint and demands of running on the runner, um, and less so about other factors that are actually really important about choosing a running shoe. You know, like the we started talking about this with Stuart, but we're going to be trying to push the conversation on sustainability within uh, the running industry this year. Um, you know, so other considerations are finding a shoe that was sustainably made, you know, like you, that might be a bigger consideration for you. Price could be something that's a huge consideration from a finance financial standpoint. So there's a lot of other factors that go into choosing running shoes than just what we have on the website. But we do hope from, a, you know, what we know from what the research is telling us now and what our experience has shown us what does a runner need to consider? And so that's kind of what this thing entails. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about here on the podcast. So you feel free to go check that out. And if you have friends who ask you about what shoe should I get, we do think this is a helpful resource for them as well. All right. So first, before we start talking about the shoes, the more important thing is to talk about what are the demands of running itself. So Matt, tell us a little bit about what is running and what is a demand of the person trying to do the activity? So if you break down running into its simplest motion, it's a series of single leg hops repeatedly over long distances. And so anybody that's ever done, you know, jumping or plyometric exercise, you know, the single leg hop can be difficult and there's a lot of impact associated with it. And there's much more than than walking. So walking in the biomechanical literature, usually that's considered the standard of, you know, when you walk and you take a step, your body's exposed to one times its own body weight. So it's just just your body weight. So if I, if you weigh 150 pounds, it's 150 pounds of force with every step you take during walking. Now, this is not meant to scare people, but when you run, that starts going much higher. So it's like three to four times body weight with each step with running. And that's just because it's a series of single leg hops. Please remember, we talked about that, that, you know, forces aren't necessarily bad. They can be positive if used correctly. So if you weigh 150 pounds Every time you run, you take a step running, especially, you know, that's going to be 450, 600 pounds of force, which sounds like a lot. But for those people that are new runners or, you know, especially that person that goes, oh, I hate running. It makes me so sore. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense mm-hmm. because your your body is having to deal with those forces and the things that are going to make you sore is the eccentric portion where your, your muscles are being lengthened as they try to absorb force. So your body needs to be very good at absorbing force and propelling itself, two different things. Mm-hmm. You know, you, so you really need, your calves are kind of the one of the primary propulsive muscles during running. Your quads, hips, usually glutes are the kind of more primary shock absorbing muscles depending on your running mechanics. And they need to be very good at that to be able to run. Mm-hmm. So new runners often are very sore, like I mentioned, because they're learning to deal with these new forces. There's a lot more muscular demand compared to walking, which they're more used to. And that's one of the reasons we encourage newer runners going, you know, we're going to talk about shoes here. But the biggest thing is make sure you give your body time to adapt to this. It will if you give it time. But if you jump in too quick, it can overload things. Yeah, definitely. I I think... Uh 
we've we've for, running is one of those really popular things that's blown in its pop blown up in its popularity in right. the last you know decade or twenty years even thirty years, but the it, it's been this really exciting way for people to like get in shape. They're like, oh, I'm going right. to get in shape. I'm going to start running. And there's Chris Powers says this, and uh, he's the guy. He's a, he's the guy who leads the class. He's a, an amazing biomechanist and researcher at USC. But he says like you you don't run to get in shape. You need to get in shape to run. And so there's that combination of yes, running is going to improve your fitness. It will because there's really high demand on your body when you try to run. So it's yep. really good for that. But if you try to jump into it without being prepared for it, that's when you're destined for injury. And that's why right now there's two populations of people who have the highest injury rates. Population number one is new runners who have started in the last year. Population number two is runners with very high mileage, which they define as more than 40 miles a week. So if you're, if you're falling in, yeah, sorry, Matt, <laughs> even though you're fine, you're like never injured. Meanwhile, me over here, like I, wait, I don't know. Wait, wait, I'm just a frail that's not little totally body. True. No, that's not totally true. I get injured, but I keep running through it just because I'm you, so stubborn. No, so. you get pain. You don't get injured. That's right. You have pain. You yeah. like feel symptoms. Injury is feel, like a stress fracture in your foot. You know, there's that's a difference. Fair. That's there's a difference. There right? is a difference. Yes, I have. <laughs> I have torn one of my glute muscles. That was the point where I oh. could, absolutely could not run. That That's happened crazy. in fellowship. That's another story. So in fellowship, and I was coming to treat patients when I was walking on a cane because it was so bad. And I was like, hi, I'll be your PT. And they're like, I don't know if I want you treating me. Like, right. <laughs> so yeah, I had that was, but I'm, I'm, I'm the most durable one of the group somehow, despite having are. the highest mileage. Which there's some evidence behind that, by the way. At work right now, that's that's me because I'm walking around in a boot for the next couple of weeks. So I'm always like, "How do you feel about your PT having a boot on right now?" Um, but I feel like that should be like good. I know what I'm doing because I'm experiencing this right now. Like, <laughs> there, a, a I, personal experience. It's a good empathy, you know, growing in empathy for the people I right. work with. Anyway, like when I when I would have when I'd have patients. Sorry, one last thing. One last yes, when I would have patients come in that like the like you clearly need a cane and I'd go over and grab one for them. Like, guess what? I know exactly how to use this, and you can be totally confident because I'm using one too. It's this bad, right? <laughs> oh, it's good stuff. Yep. Long story short, you have to get in shape to run as well. So you know, working in some kind of you know strength training and plyometric training with both legs as you transition to running is a really great idea as well as do if you've never ran before think about the cardiovascular effort as well if you're running if you think don't don't look at other people and be like hey everyone's running you know an eight or nine minute mile i should be able to do that it's okay to run an 11 minute mile 13 minute mile that's probably where you need to start like don't let your heart rate get so high because then your form is going to break down and those loads are going to be just put all over the place because you won't land with good form because you're tired and then you things just fall apart. Take it slow. Like running is a lifelong endeavor. So really build in slow. All right. I'm getting too excited. No, people often forget about the cardiovascular part of your cardiovascular system, your heart, your lungs. Everything has to also adapt, right? You can overstress that. And it, you know, you need to stress it appropriately because it'll adapt, but yep. that can get overstressed too. So take your time. And my biggest words of wisdom to newer runners on that is I was lucky enough in Port when I lived in Portland, where I'm from, had a couple Kenyan guys that I used to train with. And they're easy days. These, these, these are guys that are running 208. 206 for the yes. marathon would run like nine to 11 minute pace on their easy runs. And it drove me nuts until I started realizing 
They just needed their body to recover and make sure that they adapted to what they needed. So if a 208 marathoner is going to run 9 to 11 minute pace, I'm sure you can too, just to give your body time to adapt. It's all good. That's why Strava and and watches are dangerous. They are dangerous for me too. I'd say that's been my biggest area of growth as a runner in this last year. Not as Strava compare, not Strava comparison mm-hmm. stuff, but more just the expectations I put on myself to like run a certain pace. I've been able to come way back, and it's been right. awesome. So it's been helpful helpful having a running coach to kind of push me that way. But use use your pace as an indicator of of how things are going that day. Not necessarily as like, oh my gosh, I'm in this kind of shape. Like it's feedback. Oh, I'm running this pace today. My body may, I may need a little bit more recovery time rather than, oh, this is, this pace defines who I am as a runner and a human being. Yeah. <laughs> and don't, don't put a pace on every run and say, oh, I need no. to run this pace every time. Anyway, that's not what we're totally talking about, but getting into running, you got to have the right mindset, new run. And, right. and I think all of this boils down to, we did want to make the point of saying, we're going to talk about shoes now for a long time. Shoes are the most important piece of running equipment that you'll have as a runner. However, compared to all the other things that go into running, it's not that important. It's a piece of the pie, but it's not like a majority of the pie to keep you healthy and successful in the sport. It's a very small piece of the pie. And now we're going to talk about it for like a half hour. (laughs) No, not that long, but we are going to dedicate some time to talking about shoes because they are important, but still a small piece of the pie. There are a lot of different shoes out there and one of the biggest things that can be overwhelming is going into a store or going online and hearing 8,000 different opinions about which shoe is going to be the right one. And I think our hope here is to show you that you are going to be the person who knows what the right shoe is for you. And there will only be a few cases where maybe your physical therapist can, can be a really good resource in finding the right shoe or a good running shoe store worker or owner who like knows what they're talking about. Like they might be able to help you too. Um, but most people are going to know for themselves what the right shoe is. And that's kind of the intent of our guide is to show you as, as a runner, how can you figure that out? So one of the things that we talk about all the time on this podcast and our website is comfort. And we do that for a reason. Um, so Matt, why don't you walk us through kind of the comfort filter preferred movement path and that paradigm and, kind of will use that to launch us into more of the conversation. Right. So the, these two things that Nathan mentioned, so the comfort filter and the, the, why am I forgetting that? The preferred the movement, movement path. Thank you. The preferred movement paradigm came from a researcher named Ben O'Nig, who's kind of one of the godfathers of running research and, and footwear research. Um, he is still alive. We tried to reach out, see if we could ever get him on the podcast, which would be cool. But it's these concepts come to the fact that, you know, not too long ago, there used to be this thought that, oh, that you need to match up people's biomechanics perfectly. And that pronation and supination was one of these these lateral, these frontal plane movements that, you know, really that was what had to be controlled. That was the most important thing. We started understanding that that's yeah, your foot rolling in or running on the outside of your foot or having flat feet or high arches. Right. 
Right. And so then as we started doing more research and like, oh, these are not actually associated with injury rates or even performance. We're going, okay, what's going on? And started realizing and like even matching shoes. Like we thought, oh, a certain arch height or a certain amount of stability, that's how we match shoes. And now most people who have listened to us know that is not valid anymore. There's a piece that that's a piece, but not the whole thing. So Ben O'Neig was trying to figure out how do we figure out how to fit shoes, right? Because, you know, if we don't have the standard was the amount of arts or the stability or art support. Now that's, you know, that's a small piece. How do we do this? And so what we started looking at some of the literature, not we, him, uh, and some of his <laughs> colleagues <laughs> would take credit for this. We wish. Uh, we only wish. We wish. Uh, <laughs> but started looking at what things look more at like injury risk, right? What it looks, what factors tend to actually predict you know what whether somebody's going to like your shoe or not and so it boiled down to like they did all this research and comfort right how comfortable the shoe was was one of those predictive factors of how well somebody's going to do in it and that kind of makes sense right if, if you have an uncomfortable shoe you're probably not going to want to train in it it's probably going to cause you to compensate in weird ways whereas if it's comfortable you know it's probably going to fit your foot and the nice thing about comfort is it makes it individual right because comfort to one person is going to be totally different to another one but it's going to be individual to them and so the comfort filter was nice because it meant that, hey, if, you, if this shoe feels comfortable to you, that's probably a sign it's going to work out. Part two, the preferred movement paradigm, again, builds off the fact that people move differently. Previously, we, the focus was trying to get people to move the same way. You have a certain amount of stability so your foot doesn't roll in and out. It needs to go a certain way. And then we started realizing, you know what? Sometimes when you try to correct that, that actually causes more problems. We start realizing everybody is unique biomechanics, their muscle structure, their bone structure. You're going to move in an individual way. And as long as that thing isn't causing you problems, if it's not too extreme, it's probably going to be fine. And you want to find a shoe that supports that unique movement pattern, which again means you got to find a shoe that works for you because your bone structure is definitely not going to be the same as your neighbor's. So that's where, again, these two paradigms, these concepts means you need to find shoes that are comfortable and work well for your mechanics, whatever they may be. And if you run them and the shoe feels good, that's probably a good sign that it's going to do well for you. But how you figure out what feels good or what's comfortable is something we got to talk about because that's where yes. things get a little bit more complicated. So let's yeah, let's transition there a little bit. And, you know, I, th I feel like when I first started running in shoes um, by myself and then as part of this whole gig, uh, I didn't really know what to think about when I put a shoe on. I was like, right. I don't know. It feels like a shoe. It's kind of like how I am with yeah. like wine right now. A red wine is a red wine is a red wine. Like you could give me the $5 bottle from the bottom or like this like 100-year-old wine. I don't know. It was a 100-year-old wine like that much better. I don't know. 100-year-old wine that would cost you like $1,000 for the bottle or something. And I probably wouldn't be able to tell you the difference. And I, I think that's just a reality of the footwear stuff, too, is if you haven't ran in a bunch of shoes, you don't know what to even think about. You just go run. And right. so there is uh, some research done to try to develop what does what makes a shoe comfortable for runners. And so what they what they did is they you know had a bunch of runners and they had them talk about different aspects of the shoe um, through a survey to figure out what parts made runners think that it was a more comfortable shoe. And they came out with something called the run cat. What are you, what are you smiling at? I'm so sorry. The run. So they came <laughs> up with the run cat because they tested it on people while they were holding cats. And that was how they controlled. That's, you know, <laughs> that's the best I got. It was, it, that's why I was smiling. Like this is dumb. And BJ is probably going to cut this out later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. 
I can't. Um, I was trying to remember why they called it Run Cat. It's an abbreviation, but I was trying to come up with something more witty. That that's really funny. Is so, it? <laughs> it's it's funny how bad it was. You know. All right, that's fair. Anyway, here we go. So this is what the Run Cat entails. It's got five components. So it has how comfortable the back, like the heel of the shoe, is. Um, so that's like where how it feels under your foot, how squishy, and also like how the heel cups uh, around your heel, and how comfortable the front is underneath your foot. So the what the cushioning feels like there, and how the upper sits on top of your foot. So those are two components. Component three is how stable the shoe feels to you. Number four is how flexible the front of the shoe is. And five is how comfortable the overshoe overall shoe feels on your foot, especially the top. So again, the upper. upper. So to break it down, how comfortable is it under your heel? How comfortable is it under the front of your foot? How stable does the shoe feel? How flexible is the front of the shoe? And how comfortable is the upper on top of your foot? Now, that stuff is really simple to think about. It's not rocket science, uh, but it does. (laughs) Yeah, but it does. It does break it down into some components for you to think about, like how soft a shoe mean is doesn't mean is the shoe soft enough for you? Like it's not saying a softer shoe is better. It's saying, do you like that feeling of that soft instep in, under your heel? Do you like the a slightly firmer feel under your heel? Do you like a softer foam under your foot, forefoot, like under your toes? Do you like it to be a little bit firmer there? Um, the stability one I think is interesting because it's not, it's not saying you need a stable shoe. But it's saying, does it feel stable for you? So like when I put on, for example, when I put on something like a Mizuno Wave Inspire or um, what would be a Kayano or Kayano, even the Kayano Light, I feel like that shoe is unstable for me. They're stability shoes. They're in a stability shoe category, but they feel like they push me to the, like, to the outside and I just feel awkward in my heel. So that shoe would not feel stable for me because it feels like it's moving my foot in a way it doesn't want to move. So when I think that's a, a hopefully a helpful distinction between needing a higher stability shoe versus does this level of stability feel stable for me? Does that make sense, Matt? Or am I just talking in circles? Yeah, I think for those who are more experienced, when we say stability, we're not talking about what that was traditionally used for, meaning how much does it tr- attempt to control how much your foot rolls inwards? It really refers to how well does that, does it keep you on the platform, right? Does it, and not just rolling in, but rolling out general feeling of how well does it keep your foot on the platform and how well does it facilitate forward motion? And there's such a thing as too little and there's such a thing as too much and trying to find the, like you get people that come in, who asked like, oh, I want the like the most stable shoe. What is it? And I'm like, is that really what you want? Right. Or do you want the most stable shoe for you? Right. Not everybody. Some people do really well in a shoe like the Brooks Beast, which is one of the based on old standards, the most state is the is the highest level stability or motion control out shoe out there. But that shoe is not going to work for everyone. Right. Because and that may not feel stable for everyone because how people move is may differ. So stable being for you and your mechanics, when you put your foot on the ground, does the shoe feel like there's a solid base underneath your foot or do you feel like you're wobbling? Does it feel too stiff? That's what they're talking about. I think that if the sh- a way that you could think about it on the two ends of the spectrum, if the shoe is feeling wobbly, it's too unstable. If the shoe feels like it's pushing you in a certain direction, it's too stable for you. 
So to right. find a middle point where it doesn't feel like it's pushing you and doesn't feel like it's wobbly is probably the right level of stability. But we should actually, let's keep on this stability conversation. Yep. I think one of the common trends that has come over the last who knows how many years is that, oh, as, as a new runner, you should get a, a shoe with stability built in just to give you that little, I mean, what's a little extra support going to hurt? That's kind of been the mentality is, you know, you might just need it because you're a new runner. It's going to help support you when you run. Why not have it? Um, and I'd say, obviously, the way that I framed this, I obviously disagree with that sentiment. Uh, but uh, let's talk about what's what are, how should we approach stability for the new runner? Obviously, we'll be repeating ourselves a little bit here, but... Um, I think the first thing is you don't necessarily need a stability shoe as a new runner, but any, what else do you have as you muse on that question? I think the biggest things that I would think about is so in their walking shoes where they're using inserts or where they're using things that added stability or arch support or things like that. Um, is their walking footwear something that they have used stability in? Do they have a history of injuries that are, that may get stressed, you know, from excessive motion in a certain way? So that might be a reason that I might consider giving someone a stability shoe as a new runner. But for the most part, I'm going to see if I can probably find a new stable or like a stable neutral shoe or just a general neutral shoe just to start somebody out. Um, there's lots of stories of runners starting out being started out in very high level stability shoes and going, oh, this is not very comfortable and not enjoying running because it's too stiff for them. And then they go try something else. I'm like, oh, this just feels so much better. And so unless you've got that history there or like a list of factors that may make you think, you know, you've used stability in your, in your walking shoes or for whatever reason outside of that, I'd probably start with a neutral shoe. Yeah. My, my recommendation to people going to find their first shoe, if they don't already know what they love, you know, right. Have an open mind is basically my, my advice. Like go in and try some stability stuff, try some neutral stuff and just start to see where you, where you line up in there. You know, if you're in a run specialty store, they'll probably let you run on a treadmill or outside. If you're at like a, here it's Rogan's or like, I don't know what the stores are, but Rogan's around here is basically like a department where, uh, you know, a department store that has a bunch of very real running shoes, um, mm-hmm. you know, run around the aisles to, to try them out and just start right. to get that gauge of where do you line up? And like you said, the one population who might benefit from a stability shoe, and this is still a might, but it's at, I would say for this, this population, you definitely should try some on. And it's those who have a history of pronation related injuries like, um, tibialis posterior tendon issues or, certain types of Achilles tendinopathy or plantar fascia pain. Those people who fall into that category should probably consider at least trying one on because there's some evidence that it might help. So doesn't mean you need to get it, but try it out. Notice Nathan saying you should consider it, right? Because you might find your running mechanics change, right? Walking and running mechanics don't always correlate. And that's one of the biggest things I tell people is if you're going to try on shoes It's exactly the same thing as when I'm examining somebody, right? So I'm not just going to watch them walk. If they're a runner, I am not just going to watch them walk. I might watch them walk to go kind of what, let me give you an, give me an intro to how you move, but then I'm going to need to watch you run because if you're not testing the shoes while running, you're really not going to know how they feel. I think two other pieces of advice that we give uh, newer runners or people just dipping into this one is to look for a shoe that is, you kind of mentioned this before, one is to look for a shoe that's most similar to what you walk in currently. There are a lot of 
and this is kind of point number two is don't get a super shoe. <laughs> um, yeah, don't do that. So just start with a shoe that is a slow transition from whatever you're walking in to running. And so there are a lot of options that are very more traditionally built that are going to have a platform similar to shoes that we just walk in day to day. And we think that starting there is a much better idea than adding the variability of a super shoe that has a really compressive foam or has less stability because it's got a narrow platform through the midfoot or has a carbon plate that stiffens the, the whole shoe and a rocker sole that you have to get used to. Take all of that stuff out. It should be a traditional shoe um, that that doesn't have anything crazy thrown into it. So find something that's most similar to what you're used to walking in, for sure. Anything else on that? Oh, I think it was good. Okay. I had one other thing. We'll see if it ever comes back to me. Um, oh, yes, the last thing. There is some evidence, we've mentioned this earlier in this podcast, that having a shoe rotation may be helpful. We understand that shoes are not cheap and they're only getting more expensive. But if you're somebody who can front the extra money um, to get two different pairs of shoes, that can help from an injury prevention standpoint. So that will give a little bit of variability to the the repetitive motion of running by having a slightly different platform under your feet. And it's going to make those shoes last longer. So long-term, the cost is the same, but short-term, you just have to have the capital up front. So if you can't do that, no problem. You know, like I don't, that's, that doesn't make running not doable, but if you have that little bit of extra capital that you can spend and that's not going to be a problem on you or your family or whatever, that, that might not be a bad idea to find two that you like and, and go with those two. And that will also, for your next time of buying shoes, that can help you figure out, Hey, which one did I kind of veer towards more? Because that can help you refine your search in the future. Matt, Matt, one more question I have for you. Yep. That, this is the other thing I remembered. Stability. Um, a lot of people are going to be, who start running, may use orthotics regularly. Orthotics is a whole other conversation, but we do get the question a lot. Should I put more orthotics? Since I need the stability from orthotics, should I put them in stability shoes for running? T- talk about that question. I would, I would highly suggest not doing that. And the reason why is that these shoes are tested without insoles. There's only a couple shoes that are te- are done specifically to accommodate insoles. One of those is the Brooks Dyad. And there's a couple New Balance shoes that they do that. But outside of that, if you add an insole in, that could very easily overcorrect you or create some things that may not work well. So if if you want a stability shoe, you should find a stability shoe that provides enough stability for you to not need the insole, right? Because then what... Because if not, you're going to have double duty there and that might cause problems. That's something I've seen very frequently where people are sold a stability shoe and an insole and they come in and they've been overcorrected. Now they're getting some symptoms from that. And all it takes for me to take the insole out and like, oh, yeah, that doesn't hurt anymore. It's like, yeah. So just from a how the shoe is developed and tested, I would encourage people not to combine insoles with stability shoes. And if you find the stability has worn down, it's not there. Don't compensate with an insole. It means you need a new pair of shoes. Yeah. Yep. That's the other thing I've seen where people have like shoes that are like 14 years old. They're just going, I just need a new insole. It's like, it's not how that works. <laughs> no, no, no. I think something else to consider is, you know, there's a, the population of people who, who benefit from the use of, uh, custom orthotics every day is very small. But for those people who small. do need that, 
Um, those were designed for your foot based on your your foot's interaction with the ground in a neutral platform. It was not designed for your shoe or for your foot to interact with the orthotic, which is also on a stability shoe because the stability shoe is going to change the interaction of the orthotic with the ground. And so that's where that kind of mitmat talked about the mismatch. That's where the mismatch can happen between the orthotic and the stability shoe instead of the orthotic on top of a neutral shoe. And so, yeah, I, it's usually not the best idea. I'd encourage people if you are if you do need to use a custom orthotic, use it in a neutral shoe, i.e., meaning one that doesn't have any traditional stability methods in it, so those don't yep. interact. Yep, absolutely. Okay, I think that covers what we wanted to talk about when it comes to shoes for the new runner. Again, you can go onto our beginners ride to run beginner's ride beginner's guide to running yeah. shoes yeah. Um, on docs but matt you got one, you got one more thing i my my last comment was please remember that every running shoe that you run in or test isn't is a case study on yourself right it's it's you going did this work for me and so it doesn't have to be perfect right this is actually the reason i started this thing in the whole perf- the first place is going how do i find shoes that work for me and each thing is a test. And so that's that's the kind of the great reason if you have the money to afford two pairs of shoes, you, that just means that's more data to kind of figure out what works for you. And that again, I want to emphasize this. We are trying to help teach you not, you know, to, to learn what works best for your body. And that's why when people ask us, what's the best shoe? We have to go. There isn't one. We have we can help guide you to what may work for you. But ultimately, you have to test that and find out what works with your unique mechanics. So every shoe's a test. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not as good. And that's part of the learning experience to figure out what what footwear is working for you. And it's an ongoing one because things are constantly changing. So you got to keep testing. It's okay to be wrong sometimes. Yeah, it happens. Yep. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining the roundtable today. I do have a couple quick wrap-up things. The first one is, if you haven't, go back to our episode from last week. We talked about the Life Rolls On Foundation. That's where we're giving uh, for the month of January. And so um, we've we've been able to donate there, and you can check out more about their uh, organization and hear more about it on the previous episode. So please take the time to go do that. If you have been listening to this or if this was your first time, something that really helps us out if you are on a podcast platform is to leave a review that helps grow our reach. So if if this is something that has been helpful for you, let us know what's been helpful. If there is feedback that can help us improve, let us know that too. And uh, your review just means a lot. I think, you know, with the number of people who listen, if like half of those people decided to take 10 seconds and leave a review, it would be crazy how helpful that would be. So if you find this helpful do us a favor and take the, you know, one minute to, to go leave a review for us. That would be fantastic. And I think that's it. If you want to continue to follow what we're doing on our website, we have a, co- a lot more releases coming out on the website this week, com. You can follow what we're doing on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and Reddit and other things. I think that Bach spread stuff too. I don't even know what he's doing anymore. He just does stuff. But we are thankful for this journey and we will talk to you all next time. Have a great night.